Welcome. I'm Dr. Jeff Perry. This is my wife, Elizabeth. So welcome uh, for the after lunch session. I see some of you have very comfortable chairs, too. So we won't fault you if you take a little nap, you know. Maybe we'll try to talk a little more lively if that happens, but we'll see. So um, we were in South Sudan for about 10 years and in northern Uganda for part of that time as well. We are now back in rural uh, southeastern Colorado. I'm trained in tropical medicine and my wife is a health educator by training. But we wanted to share with you today about malaria and the missionary. This isn't going to be your typical malaria talk where it's focused on how do we treat malaria, how do we you know, save lives of the people we're going to. It's more of how does malaria affect you when you go, which is a special consideration, and when you come back. So let me open us in prayer before we get started. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this uh, time to come together uh, as a, a greater body of, of Christ from all over the globe um, to come together and, and see what you might have for us, Lord. We we pray that this this talk, this time together, would help us be better equipped and understand things that will affect our ability to serve you and love you and love others. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be kind of doing a tag team approach. Uh, my wife will share about certain areas of uh, this topic and I will share about others. So I'm going to hand off to her to get, get going more here. Sorry, we're going to have to do the micro microphone tag here. Can you hear me? So um, I've often done talks and I've been to talks where I have no idea why who is speaking has any authority. So we thought we'd just share and get it out of the way first, straight up. Um, we are a family of 11 people. I have nine children um, and we went to Africa initially with five, but really six, if anybody can see in the picture on the left, um, because we were getting ready to have a baby, and we went to Africa in 2007, East Africa, and then came home and had a baby, then had another baby, and then we moved in 2011 with eight of our youngest children. We have three adopted and uh, six biological, and we fostered two South Sudanese boys from the tribe of Kakwa in South Sudan. So. We wanted to give you a picture of what we were when we first went and then what we were when we left. This was taken a few months before we left. Um, almost three years ago, we've been back from East Africa. And if you want to know, just for reference, the little guy in the red shirt is my son, Logan. And this over here on the left, the guy with the poofy hair, is my son, Logan, when we left the field. And he's now um, training to become a pilot. So um, that's our family. Oh, actually, you're going to go over this. You're going to go over the next slide. Objectives. I guess this is mine too. So um, some objectives that 
we are aiming towards is that we want us all to take malaria itself seriously, but not to be afraid. We come from a place in many varied aspects of medicine, a lot of knowledge, but even those of us with knowledge, when we spend time overseas, we can potentially struggle with fear of the unknown, fear of um, what's not very familiar to us. We want to grasp key factors in uh, prevention, missionaries and expatriates, what kinds of things we can be looking at. We want to understand factors and pitfalls in diagnoses, what things we need to be looking for there. We want to gain tools to counsel and make a malaria plan. And then finally, we want to understand challenges of diagnosing and treating recurrent malaria. The ironic thing, our family probably had, I don't know, 75 cases of malaria between all of us in 10 years, maybe more. Um, And Jeff got the worst case of malaria in Thailand. We were there one week, and he came home so sick uh, because he was in this culture, and they didn't have a clue how to deal with it in rural America. So that's a little bit about us. So I know the uh, the topic this past couple of years in everyone's mind has been COVID. And so what, why concern ourselves with malaria? Um, we were, we've heard people that felt that malaria has been eradicated from the world. Uh, we don't really need to worry about it anymore. And it really depends where you are serving and where you are, because there are increasingly countries where malaria has been eradicated. They've had no, no new cases for three years. Um, uh, it does happen. But in many areas, you need to go with a plan and know what's going on. So one day I was, I was doing rounds in the hospital in South Sudan, and Richard, one of our uh, nurses, came up to me and he said, ah, the, the Kawaja is seizing. And I said, what? The Kawaja means foreigner. So I was just confused. Why? Like, what are you talking about? He said, the Kawaja, he is seizing. I said, okay, I, I need to come and find out what this is. So I went over to the, the clinic side, and uh, sure enough, our 17-year-old uh, New Zealand missionary who had just been there a few weeks um, was collapsed on the floor. He was no longer seizing, thankfully. I think he had had a syncopal episode um, due to, as it turned out, having malaria. And later we, we found out the story. He had come and... I think he was taking doxycycline, but then he said, no, I don't really want to do this. I don't like the side effects, and so I'm not going to take it anymore. Um, But that really threw a loop in our day and our team, and we end up spending time uh, treating him. It's a concern. It still is a concern, and and it affects your ability to do ministry. It affects uh, and can threaten your life. Uh, So we need to be sure we know what's going on. And we really saw that different individuals reacted differently. And there's a lot of science behind this. Uh, we had some missionaries whom took doxycycline for their prophylaxis for years, and they never got a single case of malaria. And then they stopped taking doxy, and they still never got malaria. And other people, even while they were on prophylaxis, they had malaria over and over again, and recurrent cases. And um, and there's... There are different factors, uh, red cell factors, uh, hemoglobin factors that make certain people prone or susceptible to malaria. Duffy factor, 
certain ABO uh, characteristics, your red blood cells will make you more susceptible to infection uh, or more resistant. So, and we, we obviously don't test for those things regularly and we can't know those things right off the bat. So um, it's hard to predict how certain people react and if they will get recurrent infections. But as, as Elizabeth said, uh, we need to concern ourselves with it and not be afraid, but not underestimate it. And we need to make a plan with knowledge. Um, and if you're called, God will give us the grace to deal with whatever issues come up. This young man was taking malaria seriously. I think he did. He did. This was another one. This is our son, Logan. Uh, we were given many uh, pets over our time in Africa, including a porcupine. And, uh, you know, l- like malaria, you can run, but they're still going to chase after you. So uh, I would routinely walk out of my house to, to work when we had this porcupine, and, and uh, he'd be snorting behind me, and I'd kind of walk faster, you know, because I, I really didn't want that spine in my heel. So just a, a brief review of malaria. I won't spend a lot of time back in, in basic parasitology class here, but um, as you know, uh, the life cycle, the mosquito uh, ingests a blood meal and will pick up uh, a, a gametocyte from an infected person. It will mature in the mosquito gut, and then his next blood meal, he'll inject a different form in, into a new host, and that will find its way to the liver. Uh, that will develop in the liver um, into a schizont, and then that will rupture into the bloodstream. There's a there's a uh, an erythrocytic uh, stage at that point. Infects the red blood cells, goes through another life uh, cycle, and can cause rupture of the red cell, which, as you can imagine, is not good for the host, right? Um, so we see anemia. We see uh, fever. Fever usually only when the, that particular brief time of the parasite being in the blood. Uh, so smears can be negative when you're not in that stage, and that can affect a lot of our testing. So, and there are five now they recognize species of Plasmodium. It's a it's a protozoan. Um, it's usually most of its life, life cycle is intracellular, so that makes a vaccine and certain treatments more difficult. Um, the the most common and most aggressive form is falciparum, and we we hear a lot about that. That's what causes more severe malaria, uh, more quick onset, shorter incubation, and causes more severe cerebral malaria. I'm going to spend a little more time talking about vivax and ovale. Um, Malariae is another species, and Nolisi is another species found in, found in certain areas. Uh, they can all cause uh, more of a chronic anemia, but Vivax and Ovali are, are unique in that they can have a, a liver form, a hypnozoite stage, that can hide out for weeks or months or years and can be really difficult and really throw us off. Even the missionary back in their passport country thinks, oh, this couldn't be malaria kind of feels like malaria, but maybe it's COVID. I don't know, because of similar, similar symptoms. Um, so it can really, it can confuse things. So I'm going to uh, have Elizabeth talk about, we're going to go through different layers of protection. So I want to I think about this, um, prevention and prophylaxis, and then even if you get the infection, we need to talk, 
think about issues of diagnosis and then issues of treatment. And then with all that, making a plan, putting all those pieces together of how much protection do you need? So I'm going to hand over to Elizabeth for this one. Preventing the bite. So just like in the um, roundtable that we led this morning, it's really important for those of us, wherever we go to serve, for any length of time to find out what is the situation there. Particularly the long-termers will know how they've managed malaria, if it's there, what needs to be done, that kind of thing. And for us, we had... Where we went to serve in South Sudan, we were the first missionary family that we knew of. We were the first Kawaja children that the children that we served had ever seen. So we kind of were shooting at the hip and figuring things out on our own um, de novo, at least at that time frame. So we found that using mosquito nets was imperative, as well as making sure that mosquito screen was used on the house. That's things that had never been done in our area as well. They were like, well, if you just get it, you get it. But we were wanting to have a longitudinal look at our tenure in South Sudan, and we didn't want to leave because we could have prevented something that we hadn't actually taken care of. So behind me on the picture on the left, you'll see the mosquito screen doors, um, the screen doors that Jeff built. He actually built all of them for our house. And then in the hospital that we established, um, we had mosquito nets over every bed because we just felt like that's the least we can do. Um, I would also take walks with our children every day, and when we would go down the road, if we saw huge lakes and puddles, we would drain them because we knew that standing water was where mosquitoes were breeding. So we were really careful about that as much as we were able to um, to. And then we also, um, we would regularly utilize um, um, sorry, having three different thoughts at the same time. We would regularly utilize a mosquito spray. So if they didn't have something in our area, we would bring it from outside so that we could make sure and um, wear those. And despite the way that the people interacted in the culture we were serving, which was they would come home from the fields and they would sit around the fire for two to three hours at night right when the mosquitoes were looking for their blood meal, we insisted that our children and our family come inside, not necessarily under mosquito nets in the bed, but definitely being, being inside where there'd be less mosquito prevalence um, and less incidence of biting. So that's what we chose to do, um, despite what the culture around us was doing. And you can see, like, in 2007, this is my oldest daughter, Lillian, went with us, and she had no clue how to use the mosquito net. (laughs) And she actually had malaria quite a few times, too. Did I miss anything? So there's many different layers of protection you can see to prevent, um, but despite our best efforts, infection is going to break through. Um, Mosquitoes are diurnal, so they feed in the morning and the evening. Um, 
you know, I, when we first went to South Sudan and, and being from a background of public health, we both thought, yes, you know, mosquito nets, those are the answers. If people would just sleep under mosquito nets, they'd be fine. But as Elizabeth mentioned, they would spend time at the end of their, their day of planting and working uh, around a fire, and they would be out in the evening, and they would get many bites, and then they would go sleep under the mosquito net after they'd been bitten eight or ten times. So, uh, you know, I, I heard from uh, someone from the continent said mosquito nets are not the answer. Our culture is too different for them to work consistently. But the difference is is that, you know, when, when missionaries first started going uh, to sub-Saharan Africa, and in our area, it was about 104 years ago that they first went in, about one in three died of malaria. Um, so, you know, they regularly would pack their belongings in their coffin and very likely use it to ship their body back. It was very, very significant. We don't have natural immunity unless we live at least two years in an endemic area without prophylactic medicines, probably. Um, and, and the reality is indigenous people go through a lot of hardship in that first five years of life. And if they survive that first five years of life living in that endemic area, they're going to uh, have some natural immunity but at a large price. They, the, typically, they've had a lot of splenomegaly that's developed, um, and it's, it allows them to, to survive malaria, but um, there's side effects to that. So it's not feasible for everyone in sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia in malarious areas to take chemoprophylaxis, to take medicine. But... As a, as a missionary, as an expatriate coming into that setting who did not grow up in that, in that area and develop natural immunity, we have to think differently uh, because in, in some places where the prevalence of parasite is as, as high as over 50% where we were, um, if you sampled anyone at any given time, they would have malarial parasite present in their bloodstream. Um, there's a lot of circulation of disease. And so we have to take that seriously. So I'm just going to talk briefly about these different medications that are, that are available for chemoprophylaxis. Chloroquine is, uh, is still effective in some locations. I think Middle East, certain areas of, of, uh, of uh, North America and Central America, it, it can still work. Um, but fewer and fewer. It is very cheap, but... There's a lot of resistance, so you have to be careful about selecting that. Mefloquine is is a good choice in that it's once a week. It's quite inexpensive. Uh, you may have heard about side effects, though, and those they, they do exist. So uh, we've seen uh, headaches. Uh, you can get uh, chronic abdominal pain. It's It can cause some gastritis. And the one that everybody talks about and hears about is nightmares or vivid dreams um, and even sometimes kind of an exacerbation of mental illness. And so if somebody has a history of that, um, it's not the best idea probably for them. We like to use it as a screening tool too to see if they are mentally unstable. So I, I seriously have had different people tell me, yeah, I could not tolerate that. And then I kind of get to know them and I say, yeah, I think I, think I know why. Okay. So, um, but that was actually what we as a family took for most of our time. Now near the end, we, and some people would 
Dr. Crouch could probably verify that maybe we are a little crazy. So I think to go where we did, maybe we are. But um, we, at the end of our time, we did start having more side effects, kind of GI side effects in, in several of us, and we went off of the medication knowing that we would uh, be in some less malarious areas near the, the last few months. Uh, but even then, we a lot of us popped up with malaria and there were side effects from malaria. So malarone is another choice. That's a daily medication. It's, it's a very effective medication, um, usually well tolerated. And you can start it just a few days before you leave, continue while you're there. It's good for short-term trips, I think, and uh, less you know, less problems associated with it. It is more expensive, so depending on um, people's insurance and coverage, uh, that can be a barrier. Doxycycline is very cheap. You have to take it once a day. Um, it does have photosensitivity issues, which, you know, you're usually in an equatorial place. There's a lot of sun, so it does have effects. We found in our locale, and I think many locales, it's just not as effective as these other choices. Mefloquine is quite effective. Malarone is quite effective. Uh, doxycycline we saw was slightly better than water in terms of prevention, at least where we were. So Now, another one, uh, you know, primaquin we've all heard about uh, for eradication maybe uh, of uh, PIVO, uh, Vivax or Ovali. Uh, a newer medication which is easier to take in that it's a one-time dose is tefenequin. And this can actually now be used in, a, in combination with other ones to make sure you're eradicating those uh, those forms and prevent, uh, like when you're leaving a malarious area, taking a dose of that to just eliminate uh, any hypnozoites that are hiding out in the liver. So that, that can be useful. It is a little bit costly, um, and you do have to be aware of uh, G6PD deficiency, so you have to test activity and make sure that they don't have a deficiency uh, because it can lead to hemolysis and pretty severe illness. So those are, those are some of the medications that are available most commonly uh, for prophylaxis. And remember, a common side effect of malaria is death. Um, you know, we always have to think about that. You know, even in our discussions about COVID these days in the U.S., like, yes, there may be a side effect of this, but the side effect with the disease is much worse. The effects of the disease is much worse. So I'm going to have Elizabeth come and talk about some of the practicalities of, of, of prophylaxis in a, in a family and real-life setting. So for the first year of living in East Africa, we ate beans and rice for every lunch and every dinner. We ate mush for breakfast and then beans and rice. And so we had a little um, routine where we would, maybe somebody would send us something back from our passport country and we would add it to the beans and rice just to make it exciting. Like barbecue. No, one day would be barbecue day. On Wednesday was barbecue day. And Tuesday was we would have chapati with our beans and rice. That was very exciting. But on Monday, it was a big day because it was malaria prevention day. So we would have chocolate squirt day, which meant that we would crush our malaria pills up and then we would put it in some chocolate syrup, and we would get to take it. So the kids would get a full mouth of chocolate syrup, and they were so excited. We would sing, Malaria Monday, it's a fun day. <laughs> Today the kids sing louder. Today the kids sing stronger than any other day. <laughs> so they loved Malaria Monday because they could have lots of chocolate syrup. 
And we also used peanut butter because where we served, also they had something called G-nut butter. But if anybody's ever had G-nut butter, it's kind of like paste with no sugar, whereas like Jif and Peter Pan, something that you'd have imported had has powdered sugar or honey or um, something sweet. So that would be exciting if you get a teaspoon of actual peanut butter that we remembered. And then also, um, we were just passionate about praying about malaria, praying that God would help us to not be afraid, but to obey, to do what we were told to do. And in this specific instance, it was taking our prophylaxis every single week. So some of the other strategies uh, to prevent, and this is really, you know, prophylaxis is not preventing the disease or the cause of the disease, but it's it's treating periodically to keep the burden down where it's not symptomatic. And so then that was something that they did uh, in the country for uh, native uh, peoples, especially during pregnancy. Uh, they would do intermittent uh, pre- preventive uh, treatment, usually with Fansadar, which is a sulfa drug. Um, and, and that was an option as well you could you could think about, uh, especially during pregnancy. So we did have a, a missionary in our town that uh, became pregnant while she was there. She continued her normal chemoprophylaxis as well as taking IPT that we gave to all of our pregnant women uh, there in South Sudan. And then another thing which I think is important, the WHO has really pushed this as well, is test and treat every fever within 24 hours, a real public health message. Um, which, like I said, nets are not the answer because of the culture. Uh, And so people are going to get malaria. It's preventing the deaths and the severe anemia from malaria that's the issue. And so testing and treating every fever within 24 hours is the public health message that goes along with the other uh, prevention uh, methods that they're they're, uh, putting forth. So the same should go true or even more so for us as expatriates in that in that setting. And we, we when we first moved to South Sudan, we heard stories. There was another family in our region who had a, uh, I think she was about 13-year-old uh, daughter, that uh, they went to sleep. She was feeling a little funny, and the next morning she was dead. I mean, it, it can really go uh, quickly in those of us without natural immunity. And that's really true, and I've had African lab techs attest to this fact. You know, We can have very low levels of parasitemia as a non-native and be very sick uh, very quickly. So it's it's taking it uh, seriously. And you need to know your your local resources. What is available? Do you have a lab nearby? Do you have someone who can actually diagnose it accurately? Just a word on the vaccine, uh, you know, that's kind of in the holy grail of tropical medicine is the malaria vaccine. And it was actually just approved, most most curics, I think it is. Um, but it's right now it's limited to children in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, it's a four-dose series, and it, it's shown about a 30% reduction in severe malarial cases. So it's out there, but it's not... It's not anywhere as good as our COVID vaccine, for example. Uh, it's it's just reducing the number slightly, but enough that they could get approval. 
and they say combined with test and treat every fever within 24 hours, combined with sleeping under a mosquito net, they hope to further drive down the number of malarial cases year year wide that uh, worldwide that that kill children. So, but in terms of a plan that you can make uh, as an expatriate, it's not yet a part of the armamentarium. So I'm going to have Elizabeth talk about now putting this all together and, and forming a team game plan. There's a saying in Africa, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And so with that, we say um, our passion is now and always has been team, going as a team for accountability purposes. Um, each of us are going to be making fresh mistakes. That's our goal. We don't need to, we don't need to invent the wheel and make um we, we don't need to be making the same mistakes that have been made over and over and over again. We'll be making fresh mistakes. So there was a gentleman that came to serve alongside us. We'd probably been there maybe three years, maybe four at the time. His name was Braxton. He was actually a, a really nice young man from the south somewhere. And he said, um, I think he'd finished his EMT degree and he wanted to come serve at his House of Hope, the hospital that we started. We said, sure, that sounds great. And they um, our sending agency, we just want you to know that he is a type 1 insulin-dependent diabetic. And we were like, okay, I'm not sure what that means or how that's going to be different where we are serving. We have a solar refrigerator. He can put his insulin in there. Um, and Braxton was excited to come, and he was uh, a great addition to our team until about day 5 when... We woke up and found out over our mush that he had been put on IVs the night before, um, and he was having a hard time standing up, and our nursing staff was having to go over to the staff housing to attend to him, as well as all the patients in the regular hospital and the ICU and the C-sections, the five C-sections we were doing every day. We all of a sudden had staff that were having to attend to him. And what we came to learn in retrospect was that the heat, the extreme heat where we served was very effective. It, it affected him a great deal in his ability to manage his sugars. We didn't know that. We learned that by mistake. And um, he, he was actually the gentleman that, whose family doctor told him, well, don't worry about malaria prophylaxis because malaria has been eradicated from the world. And so he arrived with his insulin in his ice pack after his 35 hours of travel, and he told us he had no malaria prophylaxis. So we ended up having to give him some of our malaria prophylaxis, which meant that we would go without, because we couldn't get that there. We had to bring it from here. Um, so it put a real burden on our group, as, as our, our, the health of our group, because then we were going to have to start spacing out our own malaria prophylaxis so that Braxton wouldn't die, wouldn't become more and more ill. He ended up leaving a few weeks early, thank the Lord, and when he left, we were so happy to have had him and so happy to see him go because we thought, oh, we just would hate it if he expired while he was serving with us. So in as much as we like to think that we're serving independently, we, we live as a team, we operated as a team, and it was best that way because Braxton got the care that he needed 
But also in turn, it was important for us to reflect and to learn from that experience and say, okay, so this is things that we need to make sure that our short-term missionaries have in place before they come. They've got to have malaria prophylaxis and be willing to submit to the leadership that's there. It's also important, depending on where we serve, to, to understand the local culture, like where you're serving. If you're above 5,000 feet, you're probably not going to have to concern yourself with sleeping under a net or even taking malaria prophylaxis as long as you don't go below that because mosquitoes just don't um, don't infect people at that level. Like our friends serving in the mountains of Kenya, it's not really an issue. But if you go up and down, that's an issue. And also understanding how, what's your access to care like? How soon can you have that fever evaluated and treated? How close are you to a um, point of access of care? Is it a day's walk? Is it next door? We knew we lived at a hospital, so we could have a fever evaluated at any time. And my children actually grew to hate the lab techs because they knew they would come over to my house to check them, to check their blood. They're like, don't let don't let Johnson come in here. <laughs> so they were very nervous about that. I think that's good. Oh, sorry. I'm just switching back and forth. So just a few words about diagnosis as well. Uh, the this Methods available will be a rapid diagnostic test usually, which is an easy thing to carry and you don't need to know a lot about uh, and have a lot of reagents uh, or have skill necessarily, although there are some use that you need to know how to, how to do. And you need to know what you're testing for. So a lot of RDTs, they call them, will only detect falciparum malaria, uh, which, and their sensitivity is 98 to 99%. Which sounds pretty good, but as we maybe do a hundred tests in a day, we might miss one or two with a rapid test. Plus, we're missing the eight to ten percent that are either malaria uh, or vivax uh, in our setting. And so, all in all, we might miss ten cases in a day uh, by an RDT. It also, and it's less dependent on when when you have a fever. So, a smear is going to be accurate most when you test when they have a fever, and doing three tests, you'll get good accuracy. So you need to to look at what your RDT is actually testing for. The limitations of it also, it will not tell you the level of parasitemia. Uh, It will not tell you the species, unless, of course, you're testing for only falciparum and it becomes positive. Microscopy is kind of the gold standard, um, but if you have a good tech, if you have a tech that knows what he's doing, very user dependent. It's going to be. It's one of those tests that's going to be better in the malarious area than back here in the U.S. or your passport country that doesn't have malaria. So, uh, I mean, I've talked to I think our pathologist in our, our small, small town in Colorado. I think he's diagnosed one case in his 35 years of, of uh, pathology in the U.S. Um, so. The nice things about the uh, the smear, though, is that you can tell the species the severity of disease, and they also will pick up on other infections uh, often during that that smear. So that's that's the benefits of those. 
And I think we've already mentioned, uh, you know, that severity of disease is not always the same as the level of parasitemia. So for a foreigner uh, like ourselves, we might have a small or low level of parasitemia, but be very sick. So briefly on treatment, the gold standard is to, to have, take an artemisin combination therapy, an ACT. Uh, it's usually a three-day course. You start it early, it's highly effective, and will treat um, mild to moderate malaria quite well. The trick, and why I have a picture of our daughter and her Australian friend cooking chapatis on our front porch, is that you need to take that medicine with food, which means you need to take it early in the course of disease. And so you need prompt diagnosis, but you need prompt treatment as well before you get so sick, which can happen quite quickly. And I, I can attest to that. Yeah. So that, that was often the trick. Now, the challenge is, how quickly do you have access or do you have that medicine in your, in your catch that you can take and start immediately? The, the other medicines, uh, quinine uh, is the old standard. It's very effective. Um, IV or oral, um, it, it treats things well. There's not as much resistance uh, to it, and it's very inexpensive. Uh, they have IV artesanate, uh, which is quite good as well. If they get beyond the point where they can't take things orally, we can do either IV quinine or IV artesanate. Again, we had to be careful about people with G6PD deficiency, uh, both missionaries and um, native uh, peoples, uh, so we didn't cause worse uh, hemolysis and anemia. IM artemether is another one that's available and not as effective. You can treat with mefloquine. You can treat with malarone as well. But if you were taking that for, for prevention, you don't want to take that for treatment. Uh, and we talked about primaquine and tefenaquine to treat Vivax novalli uh, when you're having recurrent or hypnozoite issues. So there, there is artemisin resistance that's developing, and that's why they want people to use the ACTs um, because the partner drug will, will help prevent that. So want to talk about recurrent malaria. The, the uh, friend of mine, and he was from Atlanta and served with another agency in our town in South Sudan, he was one of these folks that I think in retrospect must have had all the wrong things on his red cells um, and not the right things on his red cells because he had malaria very often. And he would go home on home assignment and we got a call. He had been back for eight, nine, ten weeks, and he was in an ER with a fever, and he said, I feel like I have malaria, and they're, they're scratching their heads. And this is in Atlanta, okay, the home of the CDC. And they, they, they could not get a diagnosis. Eventually, an ID doc, I think, even without a negative, or even without a positive blood smear, he said, let's treat him for malaria. I think this is it. And, and sure enough, it was. And with the course of primaquine, he got better. But recurrent malaria can either be a reinfection. Simply, you, you had a case, and now you have a new case. New bite, new infection. It can also be recrudescence, meaning I got bit, I got sick, never quite got better, and now it's, it's back. It's, it's made me sick again. And then you can have relapse, and that's Vivax and Ovali hypnozoites from the liver, but also in, they can hide out in the spleen and bone marrow, they've seen as well. 
where I was treated, but I didn't get terminal treatment to clear those hypnozoites, and so it's it's relapsing, and I'm getting a new infection. And that can relapse months to years later uh, when someone is under physical or emotional stress. Um, you know, come back to the U.S., you start working, you're on call, and then all of a sudden you have malaria, and everyone doesn't know what's wrong with you. So that's what we see. And as I was mentioning with my friend, uh, you know, it's a danger sometimes then to come back to your passport country. I increasingly became nervous about this because I, I got several phone calls from ID docs that were taking care of a, a missionary in the U.S. And I realized they, they couldn't get access to things that I could, when I was in rural Africa, could walk down the street to the pharmacy and say, give me a box of tests and give me a box of ACTs and I'm just going to carry these with me for my family. I realized the access and the cost and the, the delay in diagnosis and treatment was made it riskier to be back in the U.S. when we were having malaria. So because the, the medical system was unfamiliar with it, and often if someone had been on prophylactic medications and then had a relapse or a recurrent infection, the smear would often be negative. They, they may not have a fever, but they were definitely sick with malaria. So, And as I said, if, if there's a delay in getting diagnosed and treated, that can make all the difference because if the person gets sick enough where they can't take their oral medication then they need IV medication, which is much more difficult to get a hold of in the U.S. as well. So we started carrying test kits. We started carrying uh, treatment courses back with us from Africa to the U.S., even as we went around. Um, so and, and don't be thrown off by the time frame because the incubation period can be a lot, lot longer than we thought. So just as a recap... So, as we said at the beginning, don't be afraid, but please make a malaria plan and, and don't underestimate it. Um, you know, there's there. We talked about the key factors in in understanding it, and the the pitfalls in diagnosis. It's going to be most effective when uh, a person is having a fever, and then we hope you have gained a few tools for understanding about recurrent malaria, about making a plan for a team especially. And really, the focus, listen to the long-term folks and the, the people on the ground in the locale where you're going to be serving uh, because they're going to have the most, most impact there. And finally, don't fear, don't underestimate it. If God has called you, He'll, he'll make a way. And we, we really found that his grace was sufficient and his power was made perfect in weakness. And he can, he can handle what, uh, what he calls us to do. So I'd like to open it up for questions. Um, so please. Yes. I just wonder what your experience has been with uh, the presence of fever on the likelihood of a positive test. If the patient doesn't have a fever, they tend to find the tests come back negative, even though they might have malaria, and then later on you test them when they do have a fever, and then you get a positive test. Yes, yes, there's a strong correlation with that. 
No, sorry. The question was, do you uh, do you find a strong correlation between having a fever and having a positive smear? Yes. And so if you do three consecutive blood smears with when they have a fever, and they're all three negative, you approach about 99% that it's not malaria. That's the only way to rule it out. So, um, but yes, I don't have much faith in a blood smear taken when the person is not febrile. You have very low yield. It's much less sensitive, unless they have pretty heavy paracetamia. Uh, So especially in an expatriate, you're going to have much lower yield. So then the RDTs are are an advantage because they're they're antigen-based, and you'll have they can detect presence of disease even without a fever, more likely. Yeah, they're a little better in that setting. But you really need three blood smears um, when they have a fever to absolutely or nearly absolutely rule out malaria. So, yeah, there's a strong correlation, yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. What's the downside of RDTs? The downside? They they do have a they do have a negative you know they are they are not completely sensitive for the disease. They're not as specific in that they cannot tell you which species usually. They can't tell you the level of parasitemia. And they the other thing is that you can't prove cure as well because uh, many of them will remain positive for two weeks after treatment even though you've treated and they're better after three days. Did I not repeat the question? You didn't say what you were talking about. Ah, okay. So the the downside of an RDT, a rapid diagnostic test, are those, yeah, that you can't tell the species, you can't tell the severity of disease, um, and so on. Yeah. Yes? So, yeah, did he was asking if, if I obtained the G6PD status on our family or others? Uh, no, not not usually going forth. Um, it's much higher in African Americans. One of our daughters is African American, and uh, I later did test her. Yes, because she kept getting malaria as well, and so we needed to treat her with. It only becomes an issue so much um, with quinine or um, tofenaquin or primaquin especially. Um, so, and they can, you can treat it, if they are deficient in G6PD, you can treat with a different regimen of like tofenaquin, for instance. So yes, it is a good idea, and I think, especially if you know someone might be at risk or if they're going to a very high malarious area, that is something to consider, yeah, definitely. So, but at least before you treat them terminally for a P-Vivax or O'Valley. Yeah. Uh. As I recall, about 100 years ago when I went to Vietnam, uh, we were taking a CP pill, which is chloroquine pemmican. Okay. Do they not do that anymore? Is it the CP pill? Is, I, I don't, I don't okay. know if that dropped off of the so, map somewhere. Yeah, so he was asking about uh, former military use of, of chloroquine, primaquine tablets. I have not heard of that. Although, because there's so much more chloroquine resistance now. but So what they do talk about, though, is if you're going to do prophylaxis, so maybe mefloquine and then uh, primaquine or tofenaquine before you leave the area to clear hypnozoites. So I think that was the, the goal with that, was to treat both. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, other, yes, in the back. Going back to the RDTs, if you're out in the field, don't have the capability of doing smears, are you confident enough in a negative test to not treat even if clinically it looks like that, or would you recommend just go with your with your gut and, and treat that? So the, the question is, when you're out in the field and all you have is an RDT, you don't have a, a good smear available to you, would you be confident with treating, would you treat empirically, or would you wait to get a positive test? I would probably, it, I think it depends on the circumstance, how sick they are. I think if they're just mildly ill and you think, oh, they have other symptoms and, you know, this could be a cold, this could be something else, a UTI, it clears some other possibilities. But if, if it really looks and acts like malaria, uh, especially if it's in a higher-risk person, it's an expatriate, uh, even if it's negative, sometimes I would treat, yes. And that may not be the textbook answer, so if, if this disqualifies us from a CME, uh, don't let it, you know. But when you're out there with your four-year-old child and she has a high fever, so one of our children did um, have a very high febrile illness uh, at one point, and her malaria smears were mildly positive. We treated her. She still wasn't better. Um, you know, myself and another doc started running through the differential and, it may have been tularemia or another rickettsial illness. Um, when you're out there, you don't have a lot of diagnostic capability. You do what you need to do, and you treat to cover your bases. Yeah. So, other questions? What did yeah. you do for her? We, uh, so the question was, what did we do for our daughter that uh, had that? Um, yeah, so we thought it was either a resistant typhoid or tularemia, and we had IV... Um, let me think. Uh, I'm blanking now. <laughs> Why is that? Medication that we never like to use here. We're all afraid of using because it causes chloramphenicol. Thank you. IV chloramphenicol. Great drug. Great. It's it's the vancomycin of you know resource limited settings. So we we treated her with IV chloramphenicol and she got better. We actually had the capability to do CBC, so we did track those with her and. and Thank the Lord she needed to get better because she was quite sick. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's it, you know the RDT may be negative and it may not be malaria, but often we treat quick and early for malaria because it was so common where we were. So, yeah. Other questions? Yes. Um, I travel frequently to Haiti, oftentimes with uh, short-term missions trips. The area where we are is not uh, terribly endemic. With, with malaria, I mean, it's, it's there, but not mm -hmm. prevalent. The experience that we've had is that every, almost every team that has come, those who were instructed to take prophylaxis, uh, very frequently get pretty sick, pretty darn sick with the side effects, mm -hmm. such that we lose a team member for at least half of the week to be effective as a team member because they're so sick from the prophylaxis. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't know if, how I ask this as a question, but it's it's this balancing mm -hmm. between, because they're only for, there for such a short time, and, you know, they spend a lot of money to come on this trip, and then they spend three to four days of the trip in bed because they're so sick and they can't function. Mm -hmm. So it's it's hard to decide what, what's that trade-off. Yeah. And usually it's Doxy that, that gets them. Yeah, so the question is, 
in his experience, going to Haiti, the prevalence is not very high, and people take chemoprophylaxis, and they get sick from the chemoprophylaxis more than from malaria. So I think that's, you know, making a team plan, it really depends on your prevalence. Like, you know, where we were, it was very high, and we, you know, we tipped, it tipped us in the balance of taking chemoprophylaxis. Now, some people only took it during rainy season, and then they stopped during dry season. Other people took it year-round. Um, so it, it really depends, uh, I think, on your setting. And if that's your experience, I think maybe you lean towards either a different prophylaxis with a different side effect profile, or maybe it's not necessary in that setting, yeah, yeah. looking at it. For me personally, being there multiple times and seeing all that, mm-hmm. never once seeing anyone who actually got malaria, mm-hmm. myself never having had it, mm-hmm. I chose not yeah. For that reason. Right, right. I think it's that risk benefit. Yeah, yeah. Risk benefit, certainly. And, you know, each person's going to be different. Like I said, those factors, we really can't, you know, maybe you have Duffy factor and the other person doesn't. And, you know, you're protected in, innately. And we don't know that. Um, and that's why you do fine without it. But other people might get quite sick. Okay, yes, uh, he made a comment about treating clothing uh, with permethrin. Yes, that is that is a good idea, and we did do that as well. And, and the mosquito nets should be uh, insecticide-treated nets um, with permethrin usually. So, yes, that is a good good strategy and really helps too. It's good, yeah. Yeah, usually about six months, and then you reapply. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. My whole family went to the Dominican Republic on doxycycline capsules, mm-hmm. and I was the one that lasted the longest without getting severely uh, ill with diarrhea. Mm-hmm. But ever since then, I've taken doxycycline tablets, and I've never had that problem again. Okay. The tablets that, so his, that were good. His comment was that uh, they had a lot of side effects on doxy cap capsules, but not on tablets. So that's, that's, I haven't heard that, but yeah, that's good. Other questions? How are we doing on time? Did you use any repellents while you were there? Yeah, his question was, did we use repellents? Um, as Elizabeth mentioned, we did. Um, you know, just as an adjunct to not hanging out in the evenings outside much, and as an adjunct to the other things, yes, we would use repellent when we needed to be out in the evening, you know, and I don't want to, to convey, you know, and we certainly don't want to convey that we should live in fear and we should limit our ministry in the evenings or mornings because of our concern for malaria. But that's the times where we break out the repellent and we, you know, spray ourselves down because we're going to go for a walk for two hours and come back in the dusk. And yeah, so we, we would use it intermittently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any final questions before we wrap it up? All right. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate you coming.